You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. You're listening to The Sports Fix. Yeah, Sports Fix Tuesday. Tommy's at home. I'm in the studio. Aaron's at home. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, You know, a lot to get to today. Uh, Nothing, you know, earth-shattering in terms of news here over the last couple of days, which is one of the reasons I took yesterday off. Uh, Last Dance, Episode 7 and 8, we want to talk about here uh, in a moment. Um, I put out a poll today on my Twitter uh, today asking people when they would feel comfortable again going back to a stadium or an arena. So I'm going to share those results and get your thoughts on it as well. I know you have a couple of things as well. Let me just open up today's show and tell you, Tom, why I was late in getting to the recording of this show because we had a scheduled time um, in in mind. Um, My youngest son, who was a sophomore at Penn State, or just finished his sophomore year at Penn State. He took uh, online finals last week. He wants to go okay. back. He wants to go back. Says a lot of his friends are going back. They've, you know, he's got an apartment there uh, just off campus, barely off campus. Um, and, you know, he said a bunch of his friends are back and he wants to go back there. And I'm actually fine with that. I, I'm actually now of, of the mindset, you know, and this is subject to change, that I just, you know, knock on wood, I just don't think he would get I think young people, you know, that aren't don't have underlying diseases or issues, it's just such a a major long shot that they're ever going to get seriously ill. Um if they were to 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 uh, get the virus. Now, what I was sort of arguing with him about, which is what took me a while to get to you um, today and to start the podcast is I, I made it very clear to him. I'm like, I'm totally fine with that. Whatever. I've, I'm now of the mindset, you know, we got to get back to, to, to doing stuff, not the people who are older, not the people with underlying diseases, not the truly vulnerable. I get that. I don't want my mother who's had cancer. I don't want her out of the house. She's not leaving the house, but I, I think, you know, young people and people who are healthy and not of a certain age, you know, I, I'm of the belief that it's start, it's time to get back to, to trying to figure out, you know, work and, and getting this economy back to some, you know, level of stability uh, again. So uh, what I told him, though, Tom, was the following, and this is where he seemed to have a bit of an issue, and this is what took me so long to get to you. I said, look, you can do that, but I just want you to know when you come back home, whenever that is, you know, a week from now, three weeks from now, you're going to self-quarantine when you get home. And that is, you know, somewhere between a week and two weeks, depending whatever the latest guidance is. You're going to have to do that. You know, I'm going to work, but I'm being very careful. You're going to be on a college campus, you know, and life is starting to move back in the direction with young people of being around people again and socializing. So if you come back, you're going to do it, you know, if, if it's still the same sort of situation where they recommend that someone's coming into the house that hasn't been in the house for a while, you know, and especially young people who are asymptomatic carriers of this thing more often than not, I said, you're going to have to self-quarantine. And he's like, well, what's that mean? How long? I'm like, well, you know, some people they do it for two weeks. Oh, come on. I mean, like, you know, we have, to, you're going to work and come, uh, that's me. I'm being careful. 
you're not going to be as careful as I've been. I come into a studio by myself. I've got these alcohol rubbing wipes, so I'm not touching door handles. I mean, am I wearing a mask everywhere I go? No. I don't, walk, I don't wear a mask when I'm walking the dog. I don't wear a mask. I didn't wear a mask when I played golf over the weekend. Obviously, I wear a mask when I go into a grocery store, or if I have to, if I have to go into a retail store, because it's required now. But I'm like, just understand, you leave here and you go up there, have at it. I'm all for it. But when you come back, because he's going to come back, because it's summer soon, they're done with school. You know, I, I don't even know when the lease on his apartment runs out. I, I didn't even think about asking him that. Um, but you're going to self-quarantine, period. So just under, and, and, and he started to, 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 to talk again. I said, it's not negotiable, period. End of discussion. Just understand there's going to probably be a week to two week period where you're not, be, you're not able to leave your room when you get home. Um, your thoughts on this? I think you're being very reasonable to him. I, I, I think, you know, you've got to, you've got to, yeah, if this is part of the problem with the mindset right now that, that we're some kind of oppressed people and we, we, we've, we've had to storm the beaches at, Nor- at Normandy and now we deserve uh, a week on the beach at, at, in Hawaii somewhere. Your actions, <laughs> or, or or somehow we made it to Paris and the war yeah. is over. Ve yeah. day is come and gone, and now we can hang out with all those beautiful uh, French women for a few months. Yeah, like like we've done something. By the way, they love us yeah. over there. That's when yes, they loved they us. Yes, they did. So I mean, you know, you, you've got, I don't know if you can drill into his head in that uh, his consequences. His actions have consequences for other people. That's right. That's right. It's a simple thing. How selfish do you want to be <laughs> about the, the thing that you, that's most near and dear to people right now is their health? Yes, and I think, he, I think he understands that. I think that when I threw out, you know, two weeks, and by the way, I don't even know if that's what it is. I've heard that it's two weeks. I, 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 but, but I told him, whatever the CDC requires... When, when someone's been outside the home and they're coming into a new home, we're going to do that. And I said, I don't think it's less than a week. And, but, you know, he understands the, you know, that the consequences would be for other people, most, more likely than not him. And I said, look, a, a lot of parents, they're not even thinking about letting their, you know, college-aged kids go back to, you know, uh, to, to school and hang out at their apartment. You know, th- this, I mean, I think many are now. I just, I am ready, I am of the mindset that it is time for all of us to think about how we, you know, we get back to, you know, some level of of, of, of functionality and of production because, there, there will be catastrophic consequences to what we've done to the economy. And I'm not sitting here telling you that it wasn't something that we had to do. And I'm not even going to complain about whether or not it was an overreaction because I think that's ridiculous. Everything, all the decisions made were made in the context of the information they had then. So you can't go back two months after the fact and say, man, those projections on the fatality rate were way off. Okay, well, that's what they thought then, and they made decisions accordingly. I don't think anybody panicked based on the data that was there. I don't think anybody overreacted based on the data. But you also have to recognize what the data is saying today. 
and then react accordingly. And by the way, we could be making more mistakes right now. This could be a major mistake that I'm making. He might get the the virus that in a week, in two weeks, oh, it's mutated, and this is much worse, and it's 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 much more uh, dangerous for younger people. Who that fuck knows at this point? Like it's so impossible to predict. But anyway, I'm ready um, for you know certainly people who are healthy understanding social distancing understanding masks where and when appropriate all of that i'm not saying we go back and you know everybody's you know packing you know uh uh jiffy lube live for a concert tomorrow night look it i mean that even if we go back to uh if we open up to a cautious approach and a wise approach in terms of the things you talk about social distancing things like that. I mean, what are the industries that are going to be positively, significantly positively impacted by that? I don't know what they are. Well, I mean, I think there are, I mean, first of all, there are a lot of small businesses that may never come back after this. This was, this will be absolutely devastating for many small businesses, specifically those small businesses in retail, hospitality, certain types of retail, hospitality, restaurant, etc. Um, you know, you've, you've got a lot of small businesses that, you know, aren't cash, aren't flush with cash. I mean, it's a month to month deal and they need to hit certain revenue numbers to create, you know, enough income to, to run that business. And two months is devastating to them. We we've impacted this economy in, in ways that I don't even know that we can measure right now. The unemployment rate's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and, and it may get, you know, based on what, what I'm reading, could get a lot worse than where it is now. Um, but in terms of the types of businesses, I, I mean, those, are, those are, 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 are the ones that have been majorly impacted. But even businesses that rely on employees to be in an office to function better. Like my, my oldest son works for a company, Tommy. They're an event and marketing company. They, they put on events for commercial real estate um, companies and they've reverted to webinars. Well, you know, no one's interested in webinars at the same ad advertising level, you know, and sponsorship level as they are in a live event where you can, you know, you can spend time and those things may have gone away for the, you know, for a year. I mean, that business is in trouble. Lots of, lots of businesses that are in, in major in trouble. Yeah. In other words, I mean, like, let's picture the one that everyone seems to point to are restaurants, because that affects everybody, because people want to go out to eat. I mean, restaurants, if they're operating under social distancing guidelines, think of the small little restaurant that you like to go to. Think of how many people will be able to eat there if you're practicing social distancing. I mean, it's probably 25%, yeah. maybe 30% yep. of the normal amount. So will that have a positive impact? on the business if they have to open up to serve maybe 30% or 35% of the people they normally do? Well, maybe in combination with what they're doing with carryout and curbside pickup and delivery, maybe it will. You know, Look, you're right. And this is my, my point is, you know, and I hear people talking about it on the radio, and we'll get to this when we talk about UFC 249 this past weekend and its impact. But I hear people declare that, you know, that uh, we'll have baseball in July or we'll have football in September. And I ask these people, how? 
how what what how do you how do you propose this is going to happen based on what knowledge well nobody knows anything well fauci laid out the whole plan for football although it was very um let's just say to me tentative because yeah. you know if did you did you read what he told peter king yesterday i didn't hear it i yes, read i read yes, it I, yes i did i read i read it and and, and you know he's guessing yeah, I know. Well, that's the, that's the part that, you know, is a bit concerning when the so-called experts are guessing. But they yes. have been clearly all along because they've all been they, they've, they've been, been right, proven they've been wrong, wrong more than they've been proven right um, with a lot of this. So, so, I mean, this is just this is just the thing that frustrates me the most. Here's here's what here's what we know about the virus. There's 2000 people a day right now and climbing, dying in the United States. Like death rate is up to 82,000 and growing. Okay? That's what we know. So making plans in August, I know you have to make plans, and I understand this leagues, the leagues and stuff have to come up with plans to, to basically come back. But anyone who thinks that this is going to, is sure that this is going to happen, is a fool. There's, I mean, we don't know anything. I do agree with that, but I also wonder whether or not you, I, I just wonder how much it actually matters to a significant percentage of the population because at this point they don't want to hear that we don't know anything. They're willing oh, to know. take the risk. I know, and, I know they are, and I but understand they're, that they're, they're they're willing to take the risk. That affects other people as well who aren't willing to take the risk. Yeah, but it's it's the you know it's the sh- it's it's shooter be shot in some cases, and I don't mean that literally, figuratively. It's you know if they don't take the risk themselves and put others at risk, well then they're not going to make it. They ha- they have to they have to feed themselves and their families, and they've got to figure out a solution. You know we've we've got an unemployment rate now that it's just outrageous and. Most of the economic experts think it's going to get much worse before it gets better, and I I don't. But let let me, let me make it clear. I'm talking about the people who dismiss dismiss the danger. Look, I went I, we went out this weekend for a walk in Frederick, uh, uh, in Baker Park, really nice park, and I'd say, including us, twenty percent of the people were wearing masks outside. That was it. Wow. I, I I was out walking around Bethesda the other day and I would say eighty percent of the people had masks on. It was so, it was I mean, it was surreal. Um yeah. I so I don't know that um I I am I'm, I'm I'm okay with many people sort of recognizing that the risk to themselves is super low and that they have the knowledge of hopefully, you know, the risk being low to them and they understand that, that, that how transmissible it is, but they steer clear of, of people who shouldn't be around people that have it. I mean, right now, Tommy, people are old and people who have underlying diseases, they shouldn't be leaving their home. 
They shouldn't be putting themselves anywhere near these people that are starting to, and I would disagree with you. I think I do understand it, and I think that they understand that you know there's risk, and I think they understand you know what's going on, and they're saying, I don't really care. I'm not going to die from this. I mean, I think what we've learned more than anything for the time being with this with this strain of COVID-19 is that it is a massive, massive long shot that anybody will die. But for people who are healthy and younger, it's almost, you know, the, the chances of them dying are so, so slim. And so I, I think they recognize that and they're ready to get on with their lives. And at the same time, you know, I think many of them will be very aware of people that they shouldn't be around. I think you're giving people too much credit. I think you're giving them too much credit. Look, here's the numbers right now uh, for the uh, percentage of deaths uh, in the United States per age group. Uh, 18 to 44, it's 4.5% of, of, of the deaths uh, that have taken place in coronavirus in the United States, only 4.5% from 18 to 44, Okay. From 45 to 64. Are you getting this from the CDC site? I'm getting it from the World uh, Health Organization. Okay. Get it from the CDC uh, 45, site. 45 to Because it, the CDC site fo- focuses on the United States. Well, this is the United States. Okay. And it's coming from who? 45 to 64. World Health Organization. 23.1%. What'd you say? 45 to 64 years old. The uh, rate of death is 23.1%. There's no way that that's true. <laughs> I don't know where you're getting that information, but the death rate nowhere for any age group is 23% plus. No, of the people who have died. Oh, of the people who have died. I'm died. sorry. I thought you died. were giving me the death rate no, no, for no, the age no, group. No. Okay. No, of, of the deaths that yeah. have taken place. Right. 23.1% of those deaths in, in the United States have been between 45 and 64. Uh, 24.6 have been between 65 and 74. And then it jumps dramatically 75 plus to 47.7%. So there's a big difference between 18 to 44 and the rest of the population. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, but but the percentage the the percent chance that you're going to die in those age groups that are under sixty five is a, is fractions of one percent. Yes, uh, I would say under forty five. Whatever, I I'm looking for it and I can't find it. It used to be easier to find for whatever reason, um, but whatever. Uh, you know, I, I, well, I'm he, looking here. I see a 0.4% for age uh, 40 to 49. Okay. 1.3% for age 50 to 59. I think it's less. And, uh, you know, uh, 20 to 29 is 0.2%. Yeah. I mean, like all the way up until 40, it's 0.2%, and it doubles to 0.4%. Right. And and remember, you know, this is, you know, simple math. It's the deaths, 
you know, divided by the overall, you know, infections. And what we don't know, but we do know it's much higher. We don't know what the actual infection number is because of all of the asymptomatic cases. So when you start to sort of extrapolate and guess, which is what they've, and that's the number I was looking for, is the the sort of projection on how many have actually been infected rather than reported to have been infected. It's a much smaller number than the one than the number that's even being reported in terms of the death rate, because I think the overall death rate right now is just under one percent for all age groups, um, but that is based on the reported infection number. But we have a sense, don't we, that because of how many people have been asymptomatic, that the infection rate has actually been much higher than the number, yes. which is like 1.3 million. So, yes. you know, if it's double that, then the infection rate is half of what they're reporting right now. If it's triple that, it's, it's you see, you just, you keep, you know that the death rate is lower than what's even being reported right now, because you don't know what the real infection um, number is a- anyway. We-, we could sit here and do this for two hours, but nobody cares. Um, I'm letting my son go back to to school and hang out if that's what he wants to do. He'll have a decision for me. He said in a few hours. Um, I can't wait to hear it. But he's just gonna he's gonna make sure that when he comes home that he's gonna have to to self quarantine. Period. And if he gets sick, by the way, he can't come home. And that's the part. There that, you go. That's the part that really like I said to him. I'm like, what if you do get sick? I mean, now I got to hoof it up to state college and walk into a hospital. I mean, of course I would, but I don't want you, you know, I don't want anybody to get sick. Um, so I put this poll out earlier today after the radio show and we took calls. It was one of those things, you know how it goes. It's like we could have taken calls on this for three hours. And the question was really simple. When do you think you'll feel comfortable again going to a packed stadium or arena? And I, and I said pack stadium, Tommy Arena, because that's really what it used to be. You know, you have a decision to go to a big-time sporting event. Well, it's going to be crowded. I don't know that we're going to have a packed stadium or arena, even when fans are allowed to come back without any restrictions for a while. Because I think the, the, this has impacted a lot of people, and they're going to wait. But the, the four answers I gave out were now, you'd be comfortable doing it now, a year from now, which basically I built into, you know, a year from now, more likely than not, we're going to have some drugs. Probably not a vaccine, but we'll we'll have some drugs that help and maybe keep you from dying. Um, the third answer was never. You're never going to feel comfortable again going to a packed stadium or arena. And then the last answer uh, possibility was, I honestly don't know. You know, right now, based on how they feel, and you know, like approaching 2,500 votes or whatever that's the answer that is by far and away the runaway leader, which is I honestly don't know. But the second answer um, in terms of the vote count is now. And I think that's reflective of people. And, I, and I'm, I'm a little bit sort of in that direction, which I wouldn't go to a sporting event right now. I would do it a year from now it, it, once there are meds. Um, but I think people are just itching to get going now. You know, I, I didn't think people would say now, and it's 25% of the vote. Yeah, but you see, that, that's the reckless, that's the, those are the reckless people I'm talking about. I mean, you think people are, are, are taking into consideration the impact of their actions? I'm stunned the amount of people who, who, who aren't uh, considering that, who don't really care, who think this is some kind of conspiracy. 
or, 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 or something you, like that. And, and what do you mean by go ahead? What do you mean by comfortable? Do you, um, do you mean not go at all, or do you mean feel good about going? I mean somebody that would go. Okay, well that's different. I mean, I I, I might go like a year from now. But I wouldn't feel comfortable. I'd be thinking about the virus the whole time I was there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think you're not allowing for people who are healthy and younger and can also be responsible. They can put themselves at risk, and it's a very, based on what we know today, a very, very low risk. They've got a much higher risk of actually dying from influenza those people do than COVID-19. But I, I don't know that you're doing them. I, I, I don't think you're accounting for them being and feeling responsible about their actions. Why can't they be both? Why can't they? Because I haven't, be, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it on where? social media. I haven't seen it on social media. At oh, all. Jesus. Social media. All. I didn't. Well, you, you don't know, think. What, what do you do? You go, do you go walk in the streets every day? I do. You do. I absolutely do. Well, I do. I do too, and I don't see it. And I'm not reckless. I don't see this I'm not reckless, and I and I haven't seen any reckless people. Oh, that's all I see. I see. Put it this way: when I'm walking my dog, I don't wear a mask. I want fresh air. I avoid people. They avoid me. There isn't anybody that I've gotten within six feet of. Everybody, you're walking down the street and people are courteous, like within 30 yards of each other. Are you going to cross the street or am I? You know, everybody's, uh, I I, I think your reckless description is, you know, for the people that you've seen down south on beaches, you know? No. No, it's from personal experience walking around town, walking in parks. No. Just a, well, a, a that's what you get for laugh. living in the boonies. Yeah, living in the boonies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can tell you that I think a lot more people are the uh, are are responsible with this. And if people want to go out and they want to get back to work and they're healthy and they're of of an age in which the risk is minimal, I'm all for it as long as they understand that they can't be selfish and that they have to realize that they are potentially, through their actions, putting other people at risk if they're not responsible. I think people can do both. I think they can take their own personal risk and be responsible and not, you know, put others at risk. Okay, okay. But you, but you declared that people are doing that, and I'm telling you they're not. Well, my experience is that, is that they are. Okay, and my experience is is that they're not. By the way, I, you know, Frederick is a very small, Frederick County is obviously a very small county compared to Montgomery or PG. But here's some interesting numbers here in terms of, I just wanted to bounce this off you, people who have, who have the virus or the reportedly have the virus. You know that the 60 to 69, my age group, is lower than 20 to 29, 30 to 39, the infection Every rate? Group, the infection rate? Yes. Well, in Frederick County, yeah. the infection rate is, is lower for 60 to 69 than every age group between 20 and 59. Isn't that a great sign? I guess it is. It's No, it really is. It means that people who are more vulnerable are steering clear of 
places where they can contract the virus, and younger people are understanding that their risk is very low. And by the way, they're not infecting others. I mean, that's essentially what I'm advocating for. People who are healthy and not vulnerable from from an age and or a, a, an underlying health situation standpoint, it's time for them to get back out there and be responsible and socially distance when, when possible and wear masks where appropriate and steer clear of the vulnerable because the vulnerable where did, shouldn't... Where did you get this the vulner- faith in human nature? I've always had more. I've always had more faith in human nature than you have. I've always been much more optimistic than you have been. You talk to idiots every day. (laughs) Don't talk to my. Don't call my audience that. That's what you think they are. All the time. I have a lot of very bright people who call in and listen to the show. Where do you think this is going to come from? This, 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 this noble gesture. I think. I, I, I think the area you live in is more, I would guarantee this is is a fact. I would say that where you live is a more conservative area and probably have more people, as you've described, that are reckless. And I live in Montgomery County, especially close in Montgomery County, in a very liberal area. Liberal-minded, and those people tend to be much more ironically, conservative when it comes to how they're handling this virus. That would be my guess. I have seen, I would say nine out of ten people that I have seen out and about have been out of their way, courteous, responsible, trying not to get it from me and trying not to give it to me. Okay. That's That's been my experience. experience. I'm not sure it extrapolates to the rest of the human race. It might not, but, you know, interestingly enough, where it may not extrapolate to, you know, some of these states in middle America, they've got the lowest infection rates. And by the way, just as an aside, this is where, you know me, both sides drive me crazy at times, the left and the right, Um, our president and the media. But come on, on the testing thing. We don't need 350 million tests right now. Every single American doesn't have to be provided a test right now. I mean, there are parts of this country where there are barely any infections and, like, hardly any deaths. Like, they've got much bigger concerns in COVID-19. Why do we have to ask the dumbest questions? Understood, you get a lot of dumb answers. I get it. But my God, this scandal over testing and not having enough for every American to be tested two or three times. Jesus Christ, do the math on this thing. We don't need a test for everybody. Everybody's not getting sick. They may be asymptomatic. Well, that's an antibody test that we need after after they've, they've the infections come and gone. We need more of those. And by the way, we need more testing. Uh, don't get me wrong. We need more testing. We weren't prepared. We didn't react well. Testing's an issue. I get it. But these these reporters who ask these questions and have created in their own mind that it's a an absolute scandal that this country hasn't been able to put together a program to provide testing for every single American. Not every single American needs to be tested. 
God, how often did we hear in the early days from Dr. Fauci and everybody else, look, if you have some symptoms, unless you're short of breath, just stay at home and self-quarantine and it too shall pass. I know but testing's important, hand, though. I, I do. Uh, okay, well, how, I mean, I, I, I haven't heard these reporters saying every American Oh, my God. I, w- I, think uh, I watched... This, I, I is w- another, this is just another illusion on your part. Oh, no, it, you know? no, it isn't. I think, oh, God. I think every time you, every time you do this, I get 50, oh. 50 tweets from people saying, what is he watching? Is he only reading the post? And I'm like, I have no idea. Kevin? Um, Kevin? Tommy, what, did you watch the task example. force press conference yesterday? Give it. And then, no, and then watch the follow-up. Watch, go back and watch Wolf Blitzer yesterday afternoon after the task force update. And tell me if they weren't literally, the president, by the way, not a good communicator, terrible communicator, terrible leadership during this whole thing. Again, I, I completely agree with that. A child in so many different ways. But he, when, he, when he made this statement that we have prevailed when it comes to testing, the, the questions, the follow-up questions were all about that statement prevailing. How can you say that when we don't have a test for everybody? And then the constant conversation afterwards was, doesn't he know what our population is? We haven't prevailed until we have enough tests for everybody. Well, no, that's but not... But you said, you said we haven't prevailed. I agree we haven't prevailed. I didn't say we prevailed. I'm, well, I'm telling you, I'm te- following up with questions on that because the questions are dumb. You don't need 330 million tests. You don't need a test for every single person in this country, Tommy. That's not definition of, of success. I'm not, I'm not saying that, every person who, I, want, who, need, who, who feels they need one. Yes, but most people don't need one. The significant majority you- of our country, don't, they don't need one. That, that's the point. What if they feel they need one? But they don't need, feel they need one. Oh, they don't. I don't think they do. Okay. Do you? Do you think that every American feels know. like they need? Do, do you feel like you need a test? I'd like to have one. I don't care. I, if I had symptoms, I'd want to test. I haven't had any symptoms yet. I'm not going to go te- get tested because I sneezed a few times the other day. Those tests should be those those tests should be used in in, for for people who really have symptoms. Now, I again don't get don't get me don't get me wrong. I don't think we have enough testing. I don't think we have enough testing to say that we have prevailed. I think it's absurd. Okay, and I think the way that the questions are handled and responded to are like seventh grade with like fifth grade vocabulary, but. The whole scene and the whole conversation yesterday after that, that uh, well, in addition to the Obama stuff, was about how can he possibly say we've prevailed when, with testing when we don't have a test for everybody? We don't need a test for everybody. My God, you know what? This is the other thing, too. I hate getting into this on the podcast, but... You know, the bottom line is, and I know you feel differently, and I know your wife was a government worker, and God bless all the government workers out there. I don't have a problem with them. I lived in a world of, of being in, in small entrepreneurial companies, a, a, the opposite of sort of a government work environment. And I'm not being critical of it. We need those people. Trust me. But my God, what do we, as a government, what have we ever done well? 
I mean, it, it's it's typically a mess. This would have been a mess for any administration. Any administration. This is unprecedented. For crying out loud, oh, our come last. On. Oh, it took I, two years. It took come two on. years and twenty million dollars to build a website a few years ago for for the health care. Government does not. You know what government does well, Tommy? They tax well. They don't. They don't miss oh, that part out of it. This is ridiculous. Okay. You know, it's, it's, this is absurd. Bureaucracy, you know, slow, take into the cleaners on deals. The there's some governments around yeah. the world that seem to have handled this better than ours. Well, we have a slightly different animal here. You know that? Slightly bigger country, slightly more bureaucratic government, not as nimble over the years. There's a lot working against us as far as that's concerned. Look, I'm not... Trust me, those of you that are hearing this differently, I am not expressing support for the way this has been handled by this administration. What I am absolutely convinced of is most administrations would have struggled with a lot of this. I think the communication uh, would have been more mature and more professional and, by the way, more decipherable um, and less self-absorbed. Uh, but I think that we were what, what was presented to the world and to this country was an unprecedented dilemma. I mean, you said earlier, and I agree with it. They don't know anything. Every day we're learning something new. Um, but I, I don't. I, I'm, I, I'm not into the the blame game right now on how this was handled. I, I, I think that many administrations would have struggled with this. Um, yeah, everybody's struggling with it, Kevin. But the early response is, is the difference. On testing, yes. They bungled the early response on testing. We weren't ready for it. And then once we started to try to get uh, ready for it, we didn't do it well. There is no doubt. And I don't know if the Obama administration or the Bush administration or you know the, the Clinton administration would have handled it differently. I have no idea or better. I do know this. You know, I certainly believe that in terms of communication and leadership and the perception of the way it's being handled would likely have been different with any one of those people and administrations. Yes. Um, I would agree with that. And here's one other thing. I know, I know you've run companies. I've, I've never worked for a government agency in my entire life. I've done nothing but work for private companies. I know that. I can't think of one yeah, wrong, wrong industry. that I would trust <laughs> to run the government. Not one yeah. that I would think would have done a better job than what the government has done in most cases. Not one private industry yeah. in any of the businesses or companies I've worked for. And you've been in, and, and as you know, because we've known each other for a long time now. I came from a totally different environment into the media business, and I, if I had spent my entire life in media, I would completely agree with you. But I didn't. I spent my, my, a lot of my time in tech companies, in internet companies, in retail uh, businesses um, that were you know, very entrepreneurial with a lot of smart people that I am absolutely 100% convinced would have been able to do a better job than the job that's being done right now. Um, but that's that's beside the point. It's, it's perspective. It's our it's our life experiences. But with ex, with the specific to 
the business of media that I've been involved in and broadcasting, there isn't one management team that I've worked for here that I would trust to handle this any better than the government. I would agree with you on that. Okay. All right. What else we got? All right. So what about <laughs> what about this? What about this sporting event? Um, going back to an arena packed or, uh, you know, what's your feeling right now? I bet you, if you didn't have to go for work, would you ever go to an arena or a stadium again? What about for a concert? Yeah, I think I would. I think I would. But again, comfortable? I wouldn't feel comfortable about it. Would it hold me back from going? Probably not. But I'd be nervous, at least the first couple of times. I I'd be th- I'd be I'd be looking around and I'd be thinking about it. I still keep coming back to the same thing that we've talked about. Until there is a therapeutic answer, a, a medical medicine prescription answer that keeps you or almost guarantees that you're not going to get seriously ill or die that I don't think anybody's going to be comfortable. I think, you know, people who where the, where the fatality rate is super low are going to be okay with that. But I'm at the age, and you're certainly at the age, where I don't want to get it. So, you know, I'm not, I, I can't see myself going into a packed stadium or an arena for a sporting event. Now, a concert's different because you can't watch those on TV. Um, but for a sporting event... Until there are, you know, there's some meds out there that make me feel like, yeah, you know, if I get it, I get a a prescription called into CVS and I'm good to go. The the, the vaccine, Tommy, too, I don't know how much you've been reading about. This is pipe dream territory. I mean, do you know how many viruses they've tried to create vaccines for? We still don't have a virus for for HIV. And this thing has HIV, you know, components to it. The meds are going to come sooner. And I think once that happens, there's going to be like a world exhale. Like, okay, this isn't going to kill us. It's going to kill some people, like influenza does. It's going to kill some people, but we're not, you know, we've got medicine now that we can take if we get it. Um, That to me would be, look, I'm also in a position where I'm at that point where I don't love going to sporting events anymore anyway. You know, unless it's really a game that I want to see. Like the last game I was at was the Maryland-Michigan game. You know, sold out Xfinity Center, sitting, you know, sharing armrests with the people next to me. You know, people on top of each other. I told the story this morning, and I think I told you, you know, during the podcast last fall, that Penn State-Michigan game I went to in the fall where it's bench seating and literally everybody's in each other's laps. 111,000 strong. I will not, COVID-19 or not, I promised myself that that was the last one of those I was going to go to. It was uncomfortable. So I can't see myself going to those kinds of events anyway unless it was a massive Redskins game, Wizards game, or Maryland basketball game. And for me, I'd prefer that there be some meds. Like, let's get to the point where we can get something prescribed for us. Once we get there, and to me, that's a year from now. So that was my answer. Um, I don't have to go to sporting events to do my job. You know, I go to a lot of games, and I've always gone to a lot of games, but more often, as you know, as a fan than as a media member. 
Um, I, I, I can't see myself going back to a lot of those until there's, you know, I'm not, I don't need a vaccine, but I need, I need, I need the med- medical answer there. You know, I tend to lean towards what you're saying. Uh, and I'll be kind of curious because, uh, look, I don't think baseball is coming back in July, no matter what their plan that they're, they're talking about. I don't think it's going to happen this season. Uh, but if it would, uh, and, you know, and they did allow media to be there without the meds, I, it'd be a real tough trip for me to make. I don't know if I could do you it. You should. I wouldn't let you do it. You, mean you wouldn't let me do it. I wouldn't let you do it because you are vulnerable. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing that. By the way, Tommy, in, in all seriousness, let's just say that baseball does resume July 4th and there's an 82-game schedule, and if you've been following the story, the, the owners essentially have come up with a proposal that they're making to the players today, so we'll find out how the players receive it. The prediction is they're not going to receive it very well because the owners are looking essentially for some sort of revenue split um, the rest of the way. But I don't see reporters being at these games. I, I see Zoom press conferences after the games. You're probably right. Why would they? Why would they right. allow reporters who they're not going to test more likely than not into their ballpark and into their locker rooms? You're, you're probably right. You know that. Uh, you don't need you don't need reporters in order to put the game on. No, you don't. You're right. The fans don't care if the reporter they care if the television cameras are there, but even the announcers could announce these games remotely. Like what's the real benefit from being in the stadium? Well, that's actually slowly that's the way the industry is moving. I know, like the tennis channel, I mean, most of those events are are broadcast from yeah. from a studio. Yeah, so I mean, th- this could be a kickstart to the notion of of having broadcast teams in the studio for these events. So, you're right, you're right, reporters, I mean, they, it, 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 the question may be answered for me. I just may not even be allowed. Yeah, I don't, I don't see, I mean, the, the, the goal will be to, for the fewest, true essentials, and you can cover a sporting event without being at the sporting event as long as you have access to talking to those players afterwards. And I'd see them, you know, Tommy, to be honest with you, when you think about this, I think that that's an absolute lock, that that'll happen and that'll be the way it is for the foreseeable future. You know, one of the things that Fauci talked about in getting the NFL back, you know, he, first of all, he he described that football is a sport that's very dangerous with a highly contagious disease like this with all of the contact and his suggestion essentially is you know even though it would not be a guarantee to keep somebody from getting it but that the 53 players and coaches be tested Saturday night before a Sunday game and then Sunday morning and anybody that tests positive they're out they they've got to leave and quarantine, and everybody else that that tests that tests negative is in. Now that gets into the whole. You know, by the way, testing. Back to the testing. Testing is an issue. I understand that. You know, we need more tests. We got to keep increasing the numbers of tests. I wasn't arguing against that. Trust me, I was arguing against if we don't have three hundred and thirty million right now, it's a failure. That's what I'm arguing against. But. 
you know, we're going to get into these situations where sports leagues, really? You're you're taking basically 53 players, call it a coaching staff of 15, just call it basically all in, 100 essentials per team, and you're going to test them twice. It's 200 tests for one team, 400 to put on a game over, say, a 12-hour period. Uh, That's going to be a problem for some people. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, look, Sean Doolittle, the the reliever for the Nationals, right. uh, on, on Twitter, he brought up a lot of questions related to the plan to bring baseball back. And if one of the phrases that he used was ethical testing. Now, I'm, I'm interpreting that as meaning testing that doesn't appear to be privileged. Right. Right, like, and that's a problem. Like, in t- like until healthcare workers can be tested twice within a twelve-hour period, you know, why should why should football now? You know, you. I mean, this this is this is weak, and I will concede that point going in. But if we are trying to really get this economy back, there are going to be industries and businesses that are going to need a certain privilege when it comes to testing. You know, the other thing, too, that got, you know, uh, fired away at the president yesterday is, you know, how do they, you know, why why does the White House get so many tests? And why is, is Pence and Trump being tested every day? Well, because they're the president and vice president, dummies. Come on. I mean, there are some people in some parts of our of our world for the purposes of functioning and, and economy enhancement that may have some sort of privilege. I'm not about to Kevin, put the- I, 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 I. Kevin, I don't think people would be asking those questions if those two people weren't so reckless publicly with their own disregard for social distancing I, and wearing masks. I, I agree with you. I'm not going to disagree with that at all. It's okay. it's it, 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 it's mind-boggling to me how Pence walked into that place without a mask on and that they said, now, look, in in the task force and you're speaking and you're, you're, you know, you can't wear a mask, but, and we no, don't, we, we don't know that they're, distance. yeah, but he's and essentially admitted that he's not wearing a mask in, in, uh, in the Oval Office and when people are around. Anyway, but we get sidetracked again. My point is, will the NFL is a $11 billion, $12 billion top line business, one of the biggest consumer, you know, product companies in the country with, by the way, um, a, a meaningful um, psychological effect on popular culture. Um, Boy, and, that is a stretch. <laughs> would the NFL deserve to sort of, I mean, there are a lot of people that would say, you know what, I'll pass on a test for a couple weeks if that means we can get a, we can get games on Sunday. I don't, but no. Listen, I, I, I know this is hard for you to believe, <laughs> but most people don't watch football on Sunday. Yeah, I know most people don't. I understand that. Okay. But more okay. people watch football on Sundays than do most other things. Yes, but most people don't watch That's football. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, most, you know what, Tommy? Most people don't watch the Super Bowl. You yes. know, it's it, it's usually right around half for forty eight percent or whatever it is. Um, the the but the Fauci thing, you know, he also he, you know in in addition to him saying that it you know it spreads and that would be a real problem. He did say that if you get a player on a team that tests positive and gets sick, 
you know, there is the the quarantine the team for 14 days. That's two games. And, you know, all of a sudden their two games are canceled. And I, I agree with you, and I know you you think the same thing. And it's like every time – and I'm trying to be optimistic about football in particular because I really – look, selfishly, I think it would be really devastating to the business that I'm in that you're in if there's no football in the fall. I think I want football in the fall. I want baseball. I want football. I want it all back. I do too. But every time I think about it logically, I come to the th- conclusion that you came to before anybody else did before the NCAA tournament. When I suggested to you, what if one player tests positive? You think that ter- that team would be, you know, basically out of the tournament? I asked my CDC neighbor that question, remember? And he said, well, maybe they should pick an extra 10 teams on Selection Sunday. You know, replacement teams. And I and I presented that to you, and you just looked at me because you were in studio that day. And you said, it's over. It's not going to be played. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm just saying if a player tests positive, will that team have to forfeit and maybe be out of the – no, 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 the tournament, it's not going to happen. And I think it was the next night or two nights later Rudy Gobert tested positive in the whole thing. You know what's really funny in hindsight? It was really sports that made this thing blow up in terms of the response in early March. When, when the NBA shut down and the tournament shut down – it was like all happening, I know, simultaneously with, you know, mitigation and social distancing and trying to flatten the curve and the whole thing. But those were bombshells, bombshells in the moment. You're right. That that was the public alarm that was raised. That was an oh shit moment for people. This must be serious. Yeah, it, yes, it, it right. was. All right, let me get to. Um, a quick mention of my bookie because mybookie.ag is offering all of the opportunities you need on UFC events. We had the big weekend last weekend. There's another one coming up. Um, and, you know, if the return of, of a good old fashioned blood sport doesn't get your attention, have some fun on the house with a wager you simply can't lose. Right now, you can. Through mybookie.ag, grab a risk-free bet up to $49, all right? They don't want you to miss out on any of the action. Neither do we. A free bet up to $49 at mybookie.ag. Earnings from MMA and simulated sports not coming in quick enough for you? Well, then try your hand in the MyBookie Casino. You could do that, too, with instant access to hundreds of slot games and table games, blackjack tournaments starting every week, offering opportunities to enter free and score a portion of huge jackpots. Now, when you go into these rooms, be careful, but they're a lot of fun to play online blackjack, online poker, online slots, Online craps, Tommy. One of my favorite. Stay safe, stay sane from the comfort of your own home. Sign up right now. Go to mybookie.ag. Use my promo code, Kevin DC, and they'll match your deposit halfway, all the way up to a thousand dollars. If you put in a hundred bucks, they'll give you fifty. Five hundred, they'll give you two fifty. Put in a thousand bucks, they'll give you five hundred dollars for nothing. So you're basically getting free money to play with just for supporting this show. With my bookie, you bet you win. And most importantly, you 
Win when you win, you get paid, and that's really important. My bookie is reliable. Um, I know a lot of these sites in mybookie.ag. You can count on if you win, you will get paid. Okay, um, boy, we've really you know we we've turned today's show into you know a partial lecture, um, probably partially in inf- uh, uninformed um, per- uh, opinions, <laughs> um, more likely than not, and and more non sports than we usually like to do. But I have a feeling that we've done that more often recently. I mean, we don't have any games to talk about. God, I wish we could be talking about the NBA playoffs. We would be heading towards the conference finals at this point in both the NHL and the NBA playoffs. um, If we were, if we had live games, uh, but we don't. Um, All right. uh, I watched last dance. I actually got to it yesterday and last night, um, episode seven and eight. Did you like them? Yes, I like them. I I liked them a lot. I mean, uh, how can you not like them? I thought they were great. it's, It's remarkable insight. Uh, it's this whole thing is great for Michael Jordan's legacy because it's just for a lot of people it just reaffirms what they always believed about Jordan, and it really, really puts a lot of distance between the Jordan and LeBron, LeBron argument. Although you know, as I think, Will Chamberlain's the greatest uh, player in NBA history. But for those who debate LeBron or Jordan, this this documentary puts a lot of distance between that debate. I think. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I think we, we talked about that after the first two episodes. And I mean, I, I, my, I sort of anecdotally get it from, you know, my boys and the reactions from their friends, et cetera. Not so much, you know, for this because they're not around the house as much, but they're blown away by Jordan. You know, I've had so many arguments with two of my three boys in particular about LeBron and Kobe versus, you know, Michael Magic and Larry, you know, those conversations over the years. And they just, they're like, come on, you know, it's like, it's like they roll their eyes. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not talking about George Mikan for crying out loud. I'm talking about Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Did they really play that long ago? Um, but what's really been interesting has been their reaction to all of this. Like they're blown away with how great Michael was blown away. And I think they recognize what we've been talking about for years. It's really, it's opened Jordan up to a whole new generation. Now, yes, it has. Now the episode seven and eight, I'm going to give you a couple of, of parts that I liked for, first of all, on the father's passing. Um, and murder. Um, I did. There, there are a couple of things that I think you know um, were made very clear for the conspiracy theorists, which I'm, I'm never, I'm never sort of on that path with these things. Um, and I thought it was made so obvious by um, God, Mark. Uh, what was the writer of Rare Air? Do you know that Mark guy? Van, Mark Vansel. Yeah. Do you know him? I know him very well. He's a Wyomaniac. Is he? He goes. Uh, he's been on Wyomania a few times. Oh my God! Well, to he's me, a, he's a crazy man. He's to, a crazy. Guy. Well, to me, he's been he's been really was really interesting in these two episodes for two reasons. He was close to Jordan, very close to Jordan in those days. For two reasons: one, he very articulately and logically blows the conspiracy theory of Jordan being suspended for some gambling related reason out of the water. 
it makes and by the way I've never felt that he I, I've never sort of been inclined to think that that was some sort of suspension anyway but between him and David Stern and their comments essentially saying you know and and, and Mark Vansell said do you really think that David Stern would take his number one asset, his number one revenue producer, and flush it with the number one team and all of the teams that have been essentially living off Jordan and the Bulls and damage the product the way it would have been damaged by taking him out of the game for 18 months. Of course he wouldn't. You're right. Of course yeah, he look, wouldn't. There, there's, there's, a, there's a question that essentially crushes almost every conspiracy is do you think everybody would stay quiet right well there's always about that too. something like this yeah there's always you see how hard it is i remember uh, i forget who the cia director was who had to resign because he was having an affair but they said the head of the cia couldn't keep secrets that he was having an affair <laughs> okay <laughs> and, and like like these conspiracies like you know do you think people are going to stay quiet for for years, everybody involved in something like this. It, it, it crushes almost every conspiracy. Um, yes, no doubt. Um, Petraeus, by the way, it was Petraeus, right? That's it. Yeah. That's it. Um, the, uh, the, so they, you know, in, in Stern, like, I, you know, I, could Stern lie? Of course. The way he said it, the tone in which he said it, was convincing right in follow-up to, to, to Vansell's remarks. And by the way, you know, I saw people tweeting, well, the NFL suspended Paul Horning for a year. And I, who was the other guy? Was it Alex Karras, Tommy? Alex Karras. So, yeah, um, Alex Karras. But, but they weren't the Michael Jordan of the NFL. Come on. I mean, the NBA, first of all, has Paul never Horning been. Paul was pretty big. I know Paul he was pretty but, but Tommy. Uh, was, on the Packers was pretty big. The Bulls of the 90s, in Jordan in particular, were carrying that league, carrying it on its back. They were killing it because of this. And so you're not. 18 months? Okay, Michael gets involved in some sort of gambling, you know. Uh, situation, uh, Michael, you're going to be suspended for the first two games of next year. We can call it an injury. That, there's your conspiracy. 18 months, no. So that was number one from Mark Vansell. Number two was he specifically said that Jordan told him a year before Jordan's father was murdered and he retired, that he was going to retire after doing something that Magic and Bird didn't do, which was win three in a row to go play baseball. Right. Which, you know, I I think most people thought that his father's death was the primary reason that he retired. Um, but he was planning on it, according to Vansel. Now, that, listen, the, the, the one difference between a Paul Horning and a Jordan is that the NFL is not built on stars. That's right. The, the NBA is built on has been built on stars since the Magic and Bird era, and particularly during the Jordan era. It was built on the biggest star in the history of the league. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, it's a big it's a big difference. While while Paul Horning was a star on a star team, the league the NFL does not you know exist solely on the star on its players. You know, completely it's, agree. It's the team, so yeah. Um, 
real quickly on him as a baseball player, because I don't know that we've ever talked about this that much, and because I don't remember what you've said. But I thought it was interesting that both Terry Francona um, and Jerry Reinsdorf, who owned the White Sox, and maybe somebody else, that they all believed that Jordan would have made it to the major leagues. Do you feel the same way? I don't know. Batting 202 is, is without any experience at double A, yeah. it's, it's pretty impressive. Right. I, I mean, t- Tim, you know, uh, so, and, and here's what nobody brought up. I can't believe nobody brought this up. Jordan played that, that winter in the Arizona Fall League, which is the league Harper. where your best, your best prospects play. Right, Harper played in In baseball. Yes. He hit 251. In the Arizona Fall League. He started with a 13-game hitting streak, but they said they were feeding yeah. him fastballs, and then they started to yeah. throw the hook, and he couldn't hit it. So he, he in, in, in the league with the best prospects in baseball, yeah. he batted two fifty one. Yeah, he It was an impressive uh, accomplishment, what he did. He stole 30 bases. Uh, when he was in Major League Baseball with Double with, with A. Let's not forget he, he ran a, bases he, Remember year. what Roy Williams said. He ran a 4 3 8, sub 4 4 at North Carolina 40. Yeah. So, I, so what, he, what he did was very impressive. But you know what? As, as an aside to this, I was with him the day he realized that he was a scab. What do you mean? It was spring train. It was in spring training. Right, ninety four. Uh, the, the the baseball strike was going on. Right. Uh, it was spring training, and uh, they were using minor leaguers at the time. We hadn't gotten to quote replacement players yet because they hadn't started the season yet. Right. Uh, so there were minor leaguers only in camp. Jordan was a minor leaguer, so he reported to camp. It was in Sarasota then. And I was with a group of reporters, maybe four or five reporters around his locker, when we told him that the, the, the baseball union, because he reported to camp, considers him a scab. And he was shocked by that. He was surprised by, by, by just the idea that not, not, not that he would be playing in games, but just him as a minor leaguer reporting to camp and taking part in spring training, the baseball players union would consider him a scab. So he left, right? He, he left. He left. I think he left the next day. Yeah. Uh, so I was there when he figured out that my, his baseball career was over. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I, I do. I mean, it is so hard. I've always felt this way, and most of you that have, you know, have either read it or heard it, or if you participated in sports, may feel the same way. Hitting a baseball was really hard. I played baseball through ninth grade, tenth grade, um, but I, you know, basketball was my thing, and I loved basketball. and And I was a decent fielder, and I could hit a little bit. But when we got to like eighth, ninth grade, and guys were throwing curveballs, that's when it really became very difficult. And I, I wasn't into it, you know. But to me, hitting a baseball is really as much a learned skill as it is an athletic feat. It's an athletic feat, don't get me wrong, but it's also in very similar ways to hitting a golf ball. It's this learned, trained skill. And what's really amazing about Jordan 
is that he hadn't played baseball in 14 years. And he he's in the Arizona Fall League. He's in Double A, and he ends up hitting two oh two. It's 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 really an incredible achievement, which I guess is why a lot of those guys thought, you know, the incredible progress he made in such a short period of time that he eventually would have been and made the progress necessary to get to the big leagues. You know, you're right. I mean, it, 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 it's it's an amazing achievement. He was ridiculed for it at the time. How about the whole Sports Illustrated thing on the cover of Sports Illustrated? Yeah. Bag it, Michael, yeah. and he never talked to them again. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was. He... I mean, he used to manufacture grudges. This was a real reason to have a grudge, and he took it to his entire career. Yeah, he had a list like you did and do. Um, <laughs> well, think about how about the LeBradford Smith thing? I didn't realize. CJ told me this morning that he remembers reading that it was made up. I didn't realize it until until last night when I was watching it. You know, those of yeah, you that know this, did I. I didn't realize he made it up. Yeah, LeBradford uh, Le Smith, who played for the Bullets back then, had 37 against Jordan in the first of a back-to-back against the Bulls. And on the way off the court, uh, it was always reported that LeBradford Smith went up to Michael Jordan and said, nice game, Mike. Right? I think that's what it was. Nice game, Mike. Yeah. And he was fuming. And he told his teammates the next night in Washington he would get what LeBradford Smith had in a game in the first half. Smith had 37. Jordan scored 36 in the first half the next night on the way to, to 47. Well, Wilbon and Aldridge both confirmed that Michael told him years later LeBradford Le Smith never said anything. He just had to create a reason. The reason should have been that LeBradford Smith got 37 on him, um, but he had to, he had to add to it to, to create um, fire. Here, here was the thing that I found really interesting in these episodes. The playoff game against the Knicks the year Jordan was out, Game three back in Chicago when the Knicks had a two-game-to-nothing lead on the Bulls who won 55 games that year without Michael. Pippen was a star. It was Kukoc's first year in Chicago, and the Bulls were good. They were really, yeah, really were. good, and so were the Knicks, and this was the Knicks' chance to finally get by the Bulls without Michael there. And in Game 3, it's a famous game. Most of you know this if you're a sports fan or you're an NBA fan. Scottie Pippen um, was with 1.5 seconds left in Game 3. The score tied at 102-102. The Knicks are up 2-0. The Bulls are back home. They need to win this game to get the series back you know, on track a little bit. And... Phil Jackson draws up a play for Kukoc to take the final shot from with 1.5 seconds left. Now, Kukoc, they went through this, had made a lot of big shots during the course of that season. Like, yes, yes, you know, did. late game, game you know, clutch shots, shots yes. game-winning shots. And so Phil call, uh, dialed up a play for Kukoc. Well, Pippen, you know, was so upset by it, he wouldn't go into the game. He was asked to throw the inbounds pass to Kukoc, and he was so, you know, uh, so angry with Jackson. He refused to go in the game with 1.5 seconds left. Now the rest of the story sort of, sort of gets told about what happened after the game, and I'll get to that in a moment. But I was thinking about this last night. You know, they, the play worked. Um, 
Kukoc catches it, turns, fires, knocks down a, a game winner. They win 104-102. The series is two games to one. What if Kukoc had missed the shot and the game had gone to overtime? <laughs> like, wh- I-, I would love to know from Phil, does anybody think that Scottie Pippen would have played in the overtime? What if they had lost the game and not won the game, you know, in overtime with Pippen or without him? And Pippen, you know, the the fact of the matter is they won the game, but they didn't feel like it walking off the floor because Kerr's telling the story. I think it was Kerr is saying, we're walking off that floor and we're still stunned. And and they liked Scotty. That's the thing. They liked him. They respected him. And so this was really a surprise deal. And Bill Cartwright, they all told the story, addressed the team in the locker room and was in tears as he was telling Pippen, you quit on us. How could you do that? You quit on your team. And and, and they all said that Cartwright was crying as he was as he was telling the story. Now Pippen apologized and got it back on track for that series. But it, um, you know, Kukoc made the shot, and you see, by the way, I thought it was a really interesting shot of Phil Jackson. After he makes the shot, Phil Jackson's just walking off the floor by himself with no smile, no anything, because all he's thinking about, as all of them are, with the exception of maybe Kukoc, is, oh my God, what did Scottie Pippen just do? Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's something that he'll, and Jordan said he'll never live it down, and he's right. Yeah, but it, you know it comes, it comes up in every discussion. Yeah, and he, you know, the funny thing is Pippen said that he'd do it again the same way, which well, that, that's just stupid. That's stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's that's, the, that's, yeah. that's just that, that that that's just stupid. You know, stubbornness. God only knows what that is. Let me ask you a question about the whole tone. Uh, particularly uh, in 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 eight uh, part eight of the documentary of my, and this is something near and dear to your heart, Michael Jordan's competitive nature. Yeah, so I, I've got I've got that you know as it's something I was going to get to. So let's get to it now. Um, you know, it's it's funny. Like I. Uh, you know, Jordan told us before this whole documentary aired that a lot of people aren't going to like me when this is over. Well, through the first six episodes, there was nothing unlikable about him. In fact, he became more likable to me. But I do think after these last two episodes that there are people watching going, man, what a dick he was. You know, he was really rough and out of line with guys like Scott Burrell, you know, who they basically made out to be like, you know, a submissive, like, you know, soft guy. And he was a good player in college, really good player. I thought it was – I have no idea what, what Scotty Burrell was as, as a professional. But, you know, I wasn't – I wasn't that turned off by it. I think a lot of it was a little bit sort of for drama. Um, You know, if it was bullying, you know, and did anybody really say that he was a bully? I don't think anybody really said that. They said he was so overly demanding and tyrant-like. And actually his comment, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but it was the end of episode seven, Tommy, the first one, the other night, when he said, some of you that are watching this, probably thought I was a tyrant and not a very nice guy, but that's because you've never won anything. <laughs> that was really, 
He looks right into the camera and says, you might think I'm a tyrant or I'm not a good guy, but that's because you've never won anything. And he said, I... But, but you know, but, but, but you see, that's where it goes off the rails for me. Look, I understand whatever worked for Jordan to motivate him, and he's got the rings to back it up. But there's more than one way to win. Yes, there is. You're there's right. More than I, I was, was going to say the exact same thing. Win, yeah. And, and you don't have to be an asshole. No, you don't. To be a winner. You... I mean, so don't sit there and say, if you don't understand why I was a jerk, you don't know winning. Yeah, totally agree with you. I completely agree with you. Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, uh, you know, um, and, and Kareem and some of the greatest winners of all time may not have been anywhere near as big of an asshole, but it didn't make them any less competitive. You know, I, always, right. I, I, I remember I used to hear that a lot, you know, and some of you out there have heard that in business. Like, if you're not really tough and if you're not, you know, you don't have to be an asshole to be successful. That, that's bullshit. That's, 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 that's fake. Um, you know, he said at the end of that episode, I wanted to win, but I also wanted them to win and be a part of it as well. Now, let me just say that in listening to the players, there's no doubt that he was hard and probably borderline bullyish and, and, a, and a bit of a, a, of a tool, but I don't get the sense that they really hated him. You know, or really disliked him. Did, did you get that sense? I, I don't think I really got that sense from any of them. No, you know, even no, st- I didn't. I didn't get that. And so, I, I think some of this may be overdone to make him out to be this like killer competitor of all time. That and there's only one way to do it: the Jordan way or the Kobe way. I'm with you. I, I mean, I do love. And, and, and like a lot of you guys can sort of identify the people that are hyper-competitive versus just competitive. Because all of these professional athletes are competitive dudes. They wouldn't be there without it unless they're just exceptionally talented. Jordan is on edge. Kobe's on edge. Steve Smith Sr. on edge. Brian Mitchell, you know, a little bit on edge crazy. Yeah. You know, Gary Clark. Like, the, the guys that just, it sickens them to lose. Like, losing is, the misery of losing is so much worse than the joy of winning. And I know a lot of people like that that aren't even in sports, you know. But um, it doesn't mean you've got to be an asshole to, to no, be it that. And, uh, no. But I think some of that asshole stuff with him was a bit overrated in listening to some of the teammates. Actually, now that I think about it, there is there was one player, was BJ, although B.J. Armstrong was the one that Jordan called before he came back to say, hey, let's go get breakfast. Yeah. Because I, I had this sense that B.J. Armstrong didn't have a good relationship with him there for, for a little bit. Um, well, I'm not sure anyone had a close relationship with him. No. Well, the... I, are, any of, are any of those guys friends? I don't think so. I don't know. I, I, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, you know, Wilbon told me... I asked Wilbon a couple of weeks ago right after the show started i had him on and um and he knows jordan well and i said right. you know over the years just observationally some of those guys like him 
are very, and uh, you know, I said for the lack of a better way to describe it, they're sort of singularly focused and narrow. You know, like Joe Gibbs, we always talk about Joe Gibbs, like during the height of Iran-Contra, had no idea who Oliver North was. He's coaching coaching his football team. He didn't know anything that was going outside of getting his team prepared to beat the, you know, the Phoenix Cardinals, you know, who they were three touchdown favorites over, but he thought he was going to lose the game. You know, and Jordan had has sort of that. I, I thought Jordan had some of that same thing, and Wilbon said, no, 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 no. Jordan is very interesting. He's very interested. He's curious. He's, you know, he's traveled a lot and that he's that he's not that, um, which actually surprised me a little bit. But I don't know why. I mean, I wouldn't have known any differently, but I always sort of put the, him in sort of that same, like, no one could be that great unless they're totally 100%, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, working on that. I agree. I, 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 I agree. And, and you know what's interesting? It hasn't translated to him as an NBA executive, has it? No, it hasn't. And you know why? Hey, here's the one guy I thought of. I, I, one guy I thought of uh, throughout all this, was how miserable Kwame Brown's life must have been as a oh wizard. Oh, my God. Wilbon told me some he, of those stories, yeah. He must have been merciful. Oh, I mean, no, Buck told me those stories. You know, Buck and Phil have a, a podcast. I know, out, yeah. And Buck told me some of the stories of being on the plane and how Jordan just was just relentless towards Kwame Brown. Because Kwame I mean, Brown because was... I mean, that was a reflection on, yeah. on him. He was his number one pick. Yeah. Um. What did he say? Um, what did um, oh, he, uh, a Buck told the story to me. Um, he said that Jordan, after a few months of Kwame Brown, or maybe it was after the first year of Kwame Brown, told Buck and a couple of other people, um, I learned a valuable lesson when it came to Kwame Brown. I will never again draft a player that can't palm a basketball. Apparently, Kwame Brown had small hands, couldn't palm a basketball. And he said, especially for a big guy that needs to close at the rim and finish at the rim, you know, he would need two hands, not one. And he said, I'll never, ever draft a player that can't palm a basketball again. Um, but anyway, I th- this stuff, I thought the end of, of episode seven was really sort of dramatic with the way Jordan, you know, said, you know, you don't think I'm a you think I'm a tyrant. You don't think I'm a I'm a good guy, but that's because you've never won anything. And I I, I tend to agree with you. I I totally tend tend to agree with you. But that was you know that's the way he did it. There are lots of ways to skin There's a cat. Lots now you to do it. It yeah. worked for him. Yeah, but but here's one I think truism. You know, to be at his level, um. You really have to have that hyper-competitive gene. Again, that and being a jerk don't go hand-in-hand necessarily. You know, Magic was ridiculously competitive. Bird was. Kareem was. Now, Kareem wasn't very likable. Um, uh, But, you know, um, but anyway, uh, that was the way he did it. That was his mentality. You know, and he said, he said, that was the way I did it. That was my mentality. And if you didn't want to play that way, then don't play that way. You know, um, you know, and you're not going to be a part of this team. By the way, when he came back, you know, it was like Kukoc and Kerr 
the new guys that he hadn't played with that essentially caused the confrontation and the fight between Jordan and Kerr. And Kerr swung at him and hit him. And then Jordan swung at him and hit him back. But Kerr standing up to Jordan, it sounds like no one else had ever done that before. Which I find just stunning. I find that nobody was willing to take on Michael. I just find amazing. Yeah. Yeah, you know. I mean, I can't, I, I mean if I'm playing a guy on the court like that in the old days when I used yeah. to play, I'm going to take him on. Yeah. I might get my ass <laughs> Right, but, I'm but, gonna, I'm but gonna you're swinging. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't uh, get that. He had respect for Curry. He said that after after that incident. Um and and Kerr said that their relationship, you know, was great after that. That there was a real mutual understanding, and they obviously played well together. By the way, I saw this. Um, oh, um, when when he came back, you know, at the end of the uh, uh, at the end of the '95 season, I thought, you know, and he, he he was admittedly very nervous. I had forgotten that he put his shorts on backwards for that first game. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny. Um, but um, I saw this on I saw this on Twitter, and I, th- I think it's actually sort of an interesting question, and that is, if Jordan never retired at the end of 93, how many titles would he have won? I mean, the answer is still six, seven, or eight. Yes. Um, I agree. Well, no, no, no. What, which of those three answers would it be? Oh, I think it would be eight. You do? Yeah. I think one of the things we learned from these last two episodes is how physically exhausted he was at the end of 93. You know, and by the way, those Houston teams were really good. The Houston teams that won it were were really good teams. I mean, I've always thought this, that I would have loved – they never played Houston – in the finals. You know, it was Lakers, Portland, Phoenix, and then Seattle, Utah, Utah. So they never, ever played the Elijah Wan, you know, Houston teams, and I would have loved to have seen that matchup. I think that would have been phenomenal because those Rockets teams were really, really good teams. Yes, they were. I mean, it would have been really interesting to see that matchup in 96, 97, or 98. And I forget specifically, you know, where Houston got knocked out along the way those years. Um, but we never got to see that. Um, and that, that's too bad because that would have been their best competition. You know, the, the, the Lakers team that they beat originally was not a Kareem Lakers team. It was a Vladi Divots along with Worthy and Magic and Byron Scott, etc. Um, when they beat, you know, Portland, you know, they weren't as good as the Bulls. Phoenix certainly had a shot. Um, Utah, you know, played them tough twice. Seattle, you know, it went to six in that series. By the way, that, is the, that, that was the other part we didn't talk about, Gary Payton. He basically scoffed at Payton and laughed at, at Payton, yeah, you know, talking about how maybe if he had checked him for the entire series. But um, the, maybe the best matchup and the, the, the team that could have beaten him would have been, you know, that Rockets team, especially the one, the second one, um, that um, uh, that uh, had uh, Clyde Drexler on it. So you had that second one had it had Elijah one, it had Kenny Smith, it had Drexler, it had um, 
Big Shot Bob. Uh, probably still had Vernon Maxwell. You know, Scott Brooks was on that team. I asked him about that a couple weeks ago. He was on that, that championship team, that Houston championship team. Okay. Didn't play much, <laughs> but anyway. No. All right, what else you got? I liked it. I, 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 I got, I've, loved, I've loved the whole thing. I think it's been exceptional. So have I. So have I. Absolutely. All right. Uh, nothing else. I got nothing else. Okay, Bob. The, the only, I got nothing else, too. You know, the only other thing I just thought was really interesting real quickly is Caesars had these Super Bowl uh, – had these, I'm sorry, NFL MVP odds that they came out with yesterday. And Mahomes obviously is the favorite, and Jackson is the is the second favorite to win the NFL MVP if we have an NFL season. You know who the third favorite was? And this really surprised me. So Mahomes was 4-1. to one, Jackson was thirteen to two, so six and a half to one, and then at nine to one, the third favorite to win the NFL MVP next year was Dak Prescott at nine to one, and I'm like, Dak Prescott more than Russell Wilson, more than Tom Brady in Tampa, more than Aaron Rodgers, more than Drew Brees, and the point I would make is that this these odds are also very reflective of what Vegas thinks about the teams that these players are going to play for. So they are very bullish on the Cowboys. Caesars is anyway. And the Cowboys do have a really good roster. You know, who knows yes, if Ma- who knows about McCarthy, but it's almost like they're saying, you know, even if Dak plays on the on the franchise tag, McCarthy is much better than Jason Garrett. Uh, they've got, you know, they added C.D. Lamb in the draft to already, you know, Amari Cooper, and they've got Zeke Elliott. Um, you know, they still have some defensive issues in spots, but for him to be the third MVP pick means that they really are high on Dallas next year, which I just yeah. thought was interesting. Like, Carson Wentz isn't even anywhere near um, the top of that list. Brady, to me, would have been the third pick. Brady, Rodgers, or Breeze before Bre- uh, Prescott. Um, but anyway. Well, you know the Dallas the Dallas Cowboys quarterback is always going to be a high profile. Uh, yeah, but that's the, this is you know that that's an MVP pick. I mean, I don't think any I don't think your general fan would think of Prescott as the third best player in the league or the third best quarterback in the league or you know they're just not thinking that way. And that's not necessarily in the odds creation for the award because you've got to be on a team that's going to that's perceived to be a good team. Um but uh, Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, Tom Brady to me would have been much higher if you had asked me before I saw this, much better odds to win an NFL MVP next year than Dak Prescott. And I think Prescott's pretty good. I don't think he's I think he's a decent quarterback. Um man, he's going to make a lot of money next year if he plays on the tag. Okay, uh, I'm done. Yeah, he is. You're done. We'll talk on Thursday. Thanks.